0: This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Richard Girigoshan. He's the director of the Regional Studies Centre in Armenia. And he's going to be talking to us about the recent border clashes between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Now, these are different because they didn't take place where they usually do in Nagorno-Karabakh, a contested area between Azerbaijan and Armenia. They took place uh, along the country's border properly, so it's a very interesting situation if you like what we're doing at popular front please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front or you can go to popularfront.co support so uh, before we get into like what's happening now and this kind of stalemate again. I just want to go over what actually happened uh, last month when the clashes took place on the border, because it wasn't Nagorno-Karabakh, right? This was Armenia versus Azerbaijan proper.
1: Well, basically on uh, Sunday, July 12th, um, the Azerbaijanis launched a very limited campaign designed to take control of a hilltop that, is fairly strategic in terms of overlooking roads on the azerbaijani side Uh, basically it caught us all off guard in terms of those observing the situation because what happened was the initial assault was a little bit half ass half-hearted but quickly escalated and it was more based on misperception and miscalculation than any professional military logic. And then it lasted for a good four to five days where they attempted two more assaults, trying to at least take control of this hilltop. Now, the Armenian side was caught unprepared, but was basically Um, endowed with the advantage of the defender and had a tremendous advantage in terms of terrain and topography and fairly easily repulsed the offensive, but it also triggered an escalation of battle space in terms of bringing in a tank, only one, mind you, and artillery and capped or Topped off with uh, UAVs with drone warfare,
0: right? And there's not normally that kind of equipment in that space, right? It's generally quite a quiet area. Was it Tabush? Was it?
1: Yeah. In other words, that border area is a hot spot only in terms of sporadic sniper fire mm. to violate the ceasefire in effect, but it generally does not involve any military campaign for territory. Because it's been, you know, 300 kilometers away from Nagorno-Karabakh, where the real dispute is centered. And this is why it was really driven more by politics in Azerbaijan, frustration, justifiable frustration over, over diplomacy. And an attempt to actually, by force of arms, kind of up the ante, if you will. So it wasn't just about Armenia. it was much beyond Nagorno-Karabakh was also a message to the international community and a message to the mediators.
0: Right. And when you say that, you know, the Azeris started this this small offensive, what did they actually do?
1: Unlike Nagorno-Karabakh, this was designed to regain an element of surprise that's been missing since the April 2016 fighting over Nagorno-Karabakh. And it was not preceded by any real reconnaissance, nor any kind of uh, artillery barrage. Rather, it was this rather comical, from an American perspective, uh, driving close to the hill, literally, in a civilian vehicle designed to probe and test reaction. It seems that the intelligence uh, was faulty. In other words, the Armenian defensive positions were much stronger than anticipated. And this is why it quickly turned from the comical or the farcical into the deadly. Because once committed for the Azerbaijanis, it was uh, difficult, if not impossible, to disengage.
0: Right. And so they got warned from what I read. The, the Armen- Armenian said, look, you got you got to go away, right? But they came back.
1: Oh, yeah. They came back and then uh, they tried on three separate occasions to retake this hill. Now, having said that, as usual, there is not a black and white uh, dimension. In mm. other words, my criticism militarily is it was the Armenian side that also provoked in two ways. One is, by enhancing their defensive fortifications on top of the hill, that was a bit of a provocation. In other words, that was a changed landscape from usual. Uh, Secondly, the Armenians, after the first day of fighting, into the second and third day, were kind of trying to reestablish deterrence by almost – almost an overreaction in terms of punishing uh for the offensive and this is both bluff and bluster but also in terms of uh firing on uh, and downing the uavs which is also unusual
0: yeah and it went on for a few days right and there was several uh, soldiers killed what happened they came to a ceasefire or what
1: Well, here's the interesting thing is, unlike the April 2016 fighting, which was the most serious, Mm. there were two differences. One is, uh, unlike the five days of fighting back in 2016, this time, after four days of fighting, uh, it was only the parties on the ground, the local commanders, who basically recognized the deadlock or the stalemate, and ceased firing. There was no international uh, engagement or mediation. Russia was actually reacting and responding, but not managing the situation. The second big difference was the Azerbaijanis lost four mid-level ranking officers, majors and colonels, and one general, which is extremely unusual for such a frontline skirmish.
0: Why was the general up there do you think? I think it was more about politics
1: within the mm. Ministry of Defence, uh probably pulling like a Norman Schwarzkopf kind of, you know, or a Patton <laughs> kind yeah. of ego, ego over caution. But but not just the general, I mean losing colonels and majors in such a border skirmish is very unusual.
0: Yeah, so with all bearing all that in mind, like what you know, for the Azerbaijanis, it was a big problem, like it's a big mess now. Why do you think they struck there instead of Nagorno Karabakh? Like you said that there was a lot of political stuff going on. Um, Maybe you can explain that a bit for us. Well,
1: I think in many ways, they sense probably based partly on a misreading of the situation, they sense a degree of weakness in the Armenian government of today that is actually exaggerated in other words the Azerbaijanis have become increasingly overconfident both militarily but also in terms of a misperception sensing an opportunity of weakness uh, within the Armenian government that frankly does not exist so i do think this was lashing out at Armenia proper it was also sending a message in a justified way of their deep frustration from the lack of progress over the peace process with Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, where they negotiate directly with Armenia rather than Karabakh itself. Now, what this also means is the danger and risk looking ahead, where no matter how justified diplomatic frustration can be to manifest into force of arms, GREATLY enhances the risk matrix. And what we see in terms of threat misperception is this is a dangerous escalation that could quickly spiral out of control and inherently based on miscalculation rather than sound military science or logic.
0: Right. And do you think that's different then to what happened in 2016? Because that did spin out of control very fast. But I don't know. Do you think that was more calculated?
1: Yes, in other words, if we look back at April 2016, what was most significant was it was a rare military victory for Azerbaijan. And to their credit, it was a victory because it was a limited military campaign with limited objectives and clear objectives. Their desire was to simply seize and secure territory in and around Nagorno-Karabakh. And in many ways, unlike the past, where they would attack just for the sake of attacking, this was professional and more uh, calculated, more planned, unlike this recent fighting. What it also represents is the changed landscape in two ways. One is there is no longer any real deterrence. No one and nothing is really preventing Azerbaijan from consistently resorting to the force of arms and there's also no longer an element of surprise which also militarily makes such offensives much harder to do in this context another change or difference is unlike in 2016 i'm more concerned now because with the covid 19 crisis we have a much more vulnerable population on both sides of the border. In other words, Armenian and Azerbaijani villagers, civilians, have been forced to stay at home, are much more exposed and vulnerable in, in the face of renewed hostilities. And moreover, if we look at the geopolitical context, this is a World War one style potential conflict, that will compel or force a response and a reaction by several larger regional players. Russia and Turkey, obviously, but Mm -hmm. even Iran would be uh, confronted with a challenge in terms of whether this continues to escalate. And militarily, it's logical now after this deadlock or stalemate to expect. Uh, a further increase in tension through the summer months and look closely after the joint military exercises between Turkey and Azerbaijan, uh, a dangerous degree of overconfidence where the Azerbaijani side may be further emboldened to bring an attack also against nagorno karabakh proper.
0: Yeah, well this is I've spoken to so many people about this because I've like, I read Black Garden years ago and I've been fascinated with uh, nagorno karabakh ever since and I've said to so many people like you might not even know about this conflict but it's like you've said if it does flare up it's not just going to be contained within those borders all of these people are going to get involved. Um Russia, I mean Russia is in a weird position right. I mean correct me if I'm wrong but I think they have like They have bases in Armenia, but are also supplying Azerbaijan with weapons. Well,
1: here's the interesting, almost trivia aspect Mm. of what makes this conflict so different and unique. On the one hand, Russia has emerged in recent years as the number one arms provider to all sides of the conflict, supplying (laughs) Armenia and Azerbaijan. Ironically, Armenia gets discounted weapons, whereas Azerbaijan, especially because of its energy wealth, pays full ticket price for all weapon systems. What we see, therefore, is a dangerous arms race, increased and even surging defense spending in Azerbaijan. And like boys with toys, a dangerous accumulation of much more modern offensive weapon systems. But the second aspect of this that makes it so different is this is the only so-called frozen conflict where Russia has no military presence whatsoever. There is no Russian direct control over events on the ground in the Grona-Karabakh, which on the one hand makes Russia perhaps at risk for potentially seeking the insurance or the leverage, of a potential future role, perhaps deploying Russian peacekeepers like it does in other hotspots. And we all know Russian peacekeepers, there's no such thing. And (laughs) second, once deployed, they never go home. Interestingly, if there's one point of agreement between Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh, and Azerbaijan, it's all against, in unity, against the deployment of any russian peacekeeping force it's the only point of agreement and at the same time turkey has greatly lost power and influence in the region not just because of the aborted normalization process with armenia but because it was replaced by russia as the primary arms patron for azerbaijan Mm. So this is also a new context. What's interesting, however, is the optimism militarily as an analyst. I am impressed that this is a rare ceasefire agreement in Nagorno-Karabakh that has no international security guarantee whatsoever. It's a rare achievement of a ceasefire being upheld simply by the parties to the conflict themselves. Mm even the monitoring is weak, symbolic at best, without even one UAV at the disposal of the so-called OSCE monitors, it's a joke. But at the same time, in addition to the absence of deterrence, there's also little punitive price to pay for any side that violates the ceasefire. And this is a problem as well. And finally, what's most distressing, is it's only a matter of time on the one hand Azerbaijan is increasingly tempted both for a domestic distraction and also in terms of being too tempted not to try again in terms of launching military operations and at the same time With the accumulated weapon systems, the expansion of the battle space to include air power, UAVs and more offensive weapon systems, uh, I'm greatly worried that uh, this is setting up the perfect storm, if you will, of renewed conflict in a Rather ignored, if not isolated region that has great power potential in terms of a new dynamic landscape uh, in a race to the bottom in terms of conflict, both unexpected and in a place unforeseen. Mm.
0: And what is happening politically right now in Azerbaijan that they thought now is a good time to do all this?
1: Well, on the one hand, there's a sense of almost running out of time. Mm. Uh, like Syria years ago, there was a passing of power uh, from, pre- from presidential power from father to son. The current president of Azerbaijan, President Ilham Aliyev, is sitting with a legitimacy that is solely based on genetics rather than any kind of elections. This is inherently dangerous. And I do think with the global slump in oil prices, the energy wealth of Azerbaijan increasingly means much less in terms of geopolitical power and the sense that uh, time is running out. And this was a sense of playing the nationalist card, using the conflict in order to not just bolster meager legitimacy, but to ride the tiger of nationalism. It's very dangerous to stay in control of such a, a risky gambit. But this is why we see a power struggle within Azerbaijan as well that is Defining and driving this new round of fighting, a power struggle where the old guard Soviet generation of advisors of the president's father are being forced out and a new younger elite is being ushered into senior positions within Azerbaijan. But the other second element here. In 2018, in a rare, nonviolent victory of people power, there was a change of government in Armenia. Mm. Capped by December 2018, which had a rare free and fair election for Armenia. In other words, the coming to power of a deeply popular and more democratic government in Armenia is also an inherent threat to Azerbaijan. It's also, mind you, an inherent threat to Russia and to President Putin for what it stands for. And this is actually the more interesting new dynamic.
0: And he, he's um I forget his name, sorry, the new the new leader in Armenia. But he's been Virginia. yeah, right. He he's been quite um I don't know, when when it was all happening, I kept my eye on it, and he seemed to be quite Like he was the guy that really wanted to focus on Nagorno-Karabakh, right? Like more so than the previous leaders.
1: Well, here's the key difference. As a more democratic leader, uh, Prime Minister Pashinyan has another advantage. Beyond popular support, he has no baggage. He has no connection to Nagorno-Karabakh, unlike the two previous Armenian leaders who were actually who came to power not only from Nagorno-Karabakh, but came to power in Armenia because of Nagorno-Karabakh and the conflict. Pashinyan is very much a civilian, a democrat, Mm. with, with pronounced legitimacy, meaning that he can afford to lead public opinion and no longer be prisoner of public opinion, meaning that we have expectations of more statesmanship, from the Armenian leader. For Azerbaijan, that's a challenge. Uh, This is also a new breed of politician that the Azerbaijanis have little experience in dealing with. And frankly, to draw an illustration, the two former presidents of Armenia, Robert Khodshadyan, Serge Sargsyan, were both from Nagorno-Karabakh and were known quantities, educated in the Soviet system. For the Azerbaijani side, there was a common ground, a common language. But with Pashinyan as a more democratic, much younger, new generation leader, it is inherently a challenge for the Azerbaijani leadership to even understand his political perspective.
0: And how is he doing now? I know at the time, like everybody seemed to love him. I never forget that footage where the, the military basically like left their barracks and were like, yeah, we're with the protesters now. Um, has he still remained popular or are people kind of not sure now? Well, no, he still still
1: maintains overwhelming public support. I mean, hmm.
0: uh,
1: several very professional, prominent public opinion surveys have estimated at still over 75%. Favorable ratings. Now, having said that, a lot of that popularity is due not only to the fact that for the ordinary people, they see the prime minister as one of them. He's not corrupt, he's by no means wealthy, and he came to power from the street as a protest leader, the Martin Luther King in terms of nonviolence mm-hmm. rather than the Malcolm X. But at the same time, we must admit his popularity is also rooted in the fact that there is no alternative. The former government was so arrogant in power and so corrupt that it has become marginal, totally discredited. So the absence of an opposition force not only makes the prime minister more powerful, but I see it as a negative The lack of a constructive opposition is a bad thing, even for the Armenian government, as well as for democratization. But he's still popular, um, and this is unlikely to uh, diminish. Now going forward, the real threat to Pashinyan is not from the former government. The real threat for stability is dangerously high expectations from the population which have only increased with the pressure of the COVID-19 lockdown and crisis. And I think the real test will come, economic recovery from COVID-19. That's going to be a more serious threat than anything Russia can do, and even anything Azerbaijan will threaten. But at the same time, I'm optimistic. Armenia is much more stable and is seeking a partner for peace and seeking a way out of the albatross or the burden of conflict
0: Mm. um and what do you make of these new um i don't even know what to call them to be honest I, i guess scare tactics on twitter the azerbaijani ministry of defense have been posting these outrageous kind of photoshops but they've been saying like yeah turkey is training with us and there's certainly reports that turkey is um you know heading over to help out you know bolster up the uh, Azerbaijani military, in terms of training, do, do you think that's just scare tactics or what? Do you think it's, I don't know, something more.
1: Well, to be honest, I'm a former instructor for the US Army Special Forces. And from my own experience and expertise, these kind of amateur, primitive, cartoon like uh, demonstrations only demonstrate the weakness and mm. the lack of professionalism. So, if anything, it reassures me that. We have no fear of an official declaration of war or any kind of sophisticated military campaign. However, I see the risk as even more deadly, and that is a risk of a war by accident based on miscalculation. Bluff and bluster not only reveals weakness, but also demonstrates a danger for unnecessary loss of life militarily.
0: Do you think this time, then, if if it does kick off, like, you know, it's looking like it possibly will do, um, do you think the international community will have the same response? Like, in 2016, it was very, very quick and kind of on point, like, yes, we can't have this. And like you said, with this one, it's been quite quiet. Obviously, we know a hell of a lot has changed uh, with the international community since then. What do you you think their response might be? I know it's hard to tell, but...
1: I think the response will be very different, and Mm. for several reasons. First is, let's be honest with the covid-19 situation uh not only are many in the international community distracted but perhaps even unable let alone unwilling to react forcefully to any renewed hostilities second again with covid-19 energy oil and gas are much less important geopolitically if we look at the changing landscape of the global economy. This also means that Azerbaijan has much less clout than it once did with British Petroleum and the oil companies. And the third difference here is just as this conflict is a very local conflict, but with regional potential and implications, I think the key to resolving the conflict, as well as the challenge to limit or mitigate the risk of war lies in the hands of local parties to the conflict and much less to the international community. And further or lastly, the unpredictable nature of the Trump administration Mm -hmm. means that the U.S. has been uh, neglecting and even withdrawing from this region as a whole for a number of years now, meaning that there's only one surprise player here, Believe it or not, it's the European Union Mm. who was the only geopolitical pretender or, or aspirant who were able to bring in the Armenian and Azerbaijani foreign ministers on a mediated video conference in the hours following the end of this escalation. No one else could do it. So I would not underestimate European Union engagement. Also, for Moscow, it's much more acceptable than, say, NATO or the United States. And as well, this is a reflection of Russian weakness and insecurity, not confidence and power. This is not Ukraine, nor is it Belarus in that regard.
0: In that respect, then, t- thinking about what you just said, then, do you think if, um, and I know I'm asking like a lot of what ifs, but I think it's it's a potential, you know, like you said, a kind of powder keg. Um, but if, if the, the conflict does kind of kick off again, do you think that then Russia are actually going to get involved, like properly? Or do you think they just kind of sit back? The same with Turkey as well. Like they always say, yeah, we'll come immediately. We'll be there for Azerbaijan. But they're stretched very thin right now in quite a lot of wars. Do you think this will actually have like uh you know backing from these powers
1: well let's take turkey first Mm. turkey was actually uncharacteristically rash and actually counterproductive in its response to the recent fighting uh the turkish president who we all know is very much an impulsive character Mm. uh, actually affirmed turkish support for azerbaijan even before the facts were in in other words It was a blind embrace, other more reasonable people in the Turkish government, including the foreign minister, have been a little more cautious and prudent. And the real fear for Turkey is not just the overextension, the commitments in Libya in Syria, etc. The real danger is the little brother of the relationship, Azerbaijan, is in charge of Turkey's reaction. And, and options. The fear in Ankara is that Azerbaijan may force Turkey into a conflict, not with Armenia, but with Russia. And this is something that even Erdogan does not want. Yet another flare up of a confrontation with Putin. We saw what this meant couple of years ago with the Turkish downing of a Russian military aircraft. Mm. This will be a big deal. Now turning to Russia, I think the real Mm. challenge in military terms, if we talk about teeth to tail is the logistic nightmare. For example, Russia's deployment potentially into the region is an impossibility. Georgian airspace is closed, Azerbaijan would not open its airspace. It has no border with Armenia. In other words, the logistical challenge alone of any Russian intervention would be extremely difficult and would be dangerous. They would be vulnerable in terms of an overextended and vulnerable supply chain and logistical chain. At the same time. The Russian military base in Armenia is a Cold War legacy. It's along the border with NATO member Turkey, and it's very much a plant-the-flag presence. It has no military capability other than an Air Force squadron. But it seems very unlikely, especially in terms of terrain and topography in Nagorno-Karabakh, where combat rotary wing... Uh, assets are much more applicable I don't really think Russia can even move the assets into theatre that it would need
0: That's that's a good point I didn't even think about that to be honest the place where they are geographically it's just not great
1: right it's like
0: an american
1: invasion of iran would be a, would be impossible
0: yeah um with that in mind then um with the uh, Aliyev, like a lot of people were out on the streets in azerbaijan basically saying why won't you go to war like it's very strange to see that normally it's the other way around um but do you think this is going to affect him if he doesn't kind of push back on this
1: it already has in other words when i referred earlier in our conversation to Aliyev's dangerous riding of the tiger of nationalism this is what i'm referring to for Aliyev, this was an unexpected sudden outburst a demonstration of national rage calling for war so much so that thousands of demonstrators stormed to the azerbaijani parliament this actually shook the regime scared the leadership in many ways later much of this storming of parliament was blamed on the opposition for attempting a so-called coup d'etat. It shows the paranoia, but also the defensive stance. I think Aliyev is beginning to fall off his ride of the tiger of nationalism. And the other problem is in Azerbaijan, there's no steam valve for dissent. It's so authoritarian. Mm -hmm. And even in recent weeks, There's a renewed crackdown on the marginal opposition as well as civil society. I think it's actually raising tension within Azerbaijan. And for me, the challenge to Armenian national security is from a weak, perhaps revolutionary moment in Azerbaijan itself. That's a different challenge than facing a military predictable rival over a ceasefire line. And I'm greatly worried about the implications of Islamists seizing an opportunity within Azerbaijan. Ironically, Turkey, although Sunni Muslim, has close relations, but Azerbaijan is a Shia state. Mm -hmm. And neighboring Iran may actually raise the stakes here as well.
0: Yeah, I remember when, uh, even in 2016, um, some of the Azerbaijani soldiers were, you know, allegedly doing some kind of jihadist level stuff, you know, like, I think two old people had their ears cut off. Um, it was just disgusting, I think, in Talish as well. Um, one thing that has also surprised me, I don't know if you've seen, I imagine you have, that like not only did this kind of kick off in uh, Azerbaijan, across the world, that we've been seeing, like, you know Armenian protesters are being attacked in Istanbul, in Russia, in UK, in London, we had it, like some Armenians were had a protest and they're just Azerbaijanis like a, like literally attacking them all over the place. you know, it seems like a very, I don't know, it's a very uh, big issue for the whole community, I think.
1: Well, you raise an interesting point in specifically because this also shows why this recent escalation is so different. In other words, the reaction is because this was not an attack in a disputed conflict context, over Nagorno-Karabakh. This was a military offensive against Armenia proper, which is not a direct party in terms of Nagorno-Karabakh, it's a negotiator. This was unprecedented in scale, hence the reaction in the Armenian diaspora. But one interesting thing I'll observe, and this is after. I do have to say and criticize any and all violence, whether it's by the Azerbaijanis or the Armenians in the diaspora. This is very counterproductive and very irresponsible. Mm. What's interesting, though, is the contrast. Unlike the diaspora and greatly unlike Azerbaijan, there aren't any demonstrations in Armenia there's a big contrast a divergence of views in armenia there's worry and concern memory of what war really is rather than some romanticized nationalist narrative mm. in armenia in armenia both in the parliament and the government the nationalist parties are not represented the in other words moderates have returned to power, and the militant voices have become marginalized, unlike Azerbaijan. Fortunately, if we look at the reaction to the fighting, even the prime minister's wife's social media reaction was a call for peace builders, peacemakers to come to the fore. In other words, a time for reason, a return to diplomacy, rather than Giving in to the temptation of rage and nationalist demonstrations. So I think that's important to note, also because it gives a degree of optimism that a more democratic, more moderate Armenian government may be the best partner Azerbaijan could ever hope for in returning to diplomatic negotiations
0: has that affected though the military in armenia like because that does that mean less youths are joining up or what's the state of the uh, military there now
1: well military in armenia because we're a very small country with a population of under three million it's a conscription force mm. that relies on defense reform stressing quality over quantity and To be honest, unlike Azerbaijan, we have no history of a military coup. Civil-military relations is one of the rare foundations in Armenian statehood. And actually, the Armenian military has no offensive appetite. There's no threat of territorial demand on any of its neighbors. And in fact, if we look at districts... Of Azerbaijan outside the borders of Nagorno Karabakh that are held by the Armenian forces as demilitarized buffer zones, they're also bargaining chips as concessions in the negotiated resolution of the conflict. So I think, with no offensive threat from the Armenian military, this also made the attack by Azerbaijan on Armenia even more surprising.
0: Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, Richard, thank you very much. Is there anything else you think we should go over before we kind of wrap this up?
1: Um, not really. I think you hit
0: everything. Yeah, man, definitely. Um, and where can people follow your work? If they want to get hold of you and, you know, see what you've written recently on this.
1: Well, of course, I'm on Twitter. It's Richard underscore RSC. And my think tank in Armenia, an independent think tank, is the Regional Studies Center. And there aren't many think tanks in Armenia, so it wouldn't be hard to find.
0: Excellent. Thank you.
1: Yeah, we'll be in touch, Jake. Thank you.
0: That was Richard Girigoshin telling us all about the current situation between Armenia and Azerbaijan and why that might really kick off uh, anytime soon. It's not looking good. Um, if you like what we're doing at popular front please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front there is bonus episodes access to the community discord um there's a video series now which is like an educational series basically trying to say to people like look here's some advice or tips on whatever everything from what to do in an armed clash um what kind of you know, uh, bulletproof plates you'll need if you're on a front line, how to deal with yourself if you get attacked with tear gas or whatever in a clash, Uh, there will be filming tutorials, there will be how to identify certain weapons, there's going to be all sorts coming from people involved with Popular Front, that is a series called Too Cool for J School, Um, and you can get that on the Patreon, patreon.com slash front. Uh, this episode was sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. Tell them Popular Front sent you. Say hi to Frank for me. Um, this episode is also sponsored by Grind Core House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA. There's one in South and one in West. Check them out on social media. At Grindcore House. The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda posters. Get prints at propagandopolis.com. Check them out. Um, if you want to follow us on social medias, you can follow me at twitter.com uh, slash jake underscore hanrahan H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. I'm on there quite often talking shit and sharing news on various conflicts around the world. Uh, Or you can follow us on Twitter at PopularFrontCO. Um, YouTube, youtube.com slash PopularFront. Or you can go to PopularFront.tv. I'm working on a website just for our video content to host that there, but right now it redirects to the uh, YouTube. Um, What else? uh, Instagram.com slash Popular.Front fucking flying on the Instagram now it's got like I think fucking like 80,000 nearly followers so it's mad yeah it's doing well there um, we often post a lot of our merchandise stuff there first just because it's that kind of audience you know very visual um, uh, yeah so the merchandise as well is at uh, popularfront.shop I know we've got about a thousand fucking um, websites at the minute I don't really know how, how it's ended up like that but there you go um, yeah and as always please do consider supporting us on the patreon patreon.com slash popular front thank you very much to the following uh patreons they are jav bastian gamelo Ritzmeyer, ian froish again i think i might have said all of those wrong apologies if i have do message me and let me know james cully michael Acker akkan ethan reyes fitz madrid <clears throat> joe watt alex northrop Ed Coulthard, Johnny Laflair, Clayton Taylor, Hugo Niewski, Maxwell Burke, B.I.E.N.A. 6, Anthony Kabarek, Don Wayne, Scott Hopton, Liam Williams, Fragile Feeling, Chris Cusimano, Sebastian, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Chris Davis, D.R., Trey Nance, Charlie, Olin Thorne, Amy Rupert, Rubicon, Prashant Singh, Azad, uh, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Christina Rivetti Moody Al Rashid Bill Wilson Emiliano Andrew Hurley Bida Provost Brian McLaughlin Ari from the Discord Young Wasabi Sarushay Hawazi Tony Bin Adam Berg-Snyder Skartoon Music Stephen Davila Patrick Bronte Dan Donham, Fletcher Tate Chad Walker Diana Govinek, Q Ball lawrence abrahams Pete mccormick from what bitcoin did podcast and defiance emily molly axel iverson christopher martin ryan sandercock daniel shearer and Joanne stocker thank you all so much it's amazing to see how many people actually supporting on this patreon right now like it's incredible when i started it i was like right hopefully i can make some money to cover the show costs and then maybe you know if it gets bigger we'll maybe be able to do a documentary here and there now it's at a point where we're very quickly um kind of about to hit a goal where if that happens then we're going to start doing a full-on popular front series a video documentary series um which will also become like an audio doc series as well um it'll be called bad signal the wars you, you won't see in the news basically i'll be going to these areas and filming like conflicts that are ongoing that you just don't ever hear about like mad you know like we spoke a lot about Nagorno-Karabakh in this episode you'll be seeing footage from there um maybe Libya uh plenty of other places Rojava again there's like various conflicts within conflicts there that you you just don't see about um where else in fact I might even um have a look because I've oh yeah like um the Amazonia conflicts in Nigeria that will probably be one um, I'm gonna have a look here because. Oh, good. The search function isn't working. Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, other places would be uh, like Kashmir, maybe Congo. There's all sorts going on. In the like, there's, there's the clashes in the Congo are like outrageous. Um, You just don't hear about it. The Philippines, there's still a lot going on there. Ukraine, we go to Ukraine, you know, we film there and be like, why is no one fucking talking about this war anymore? I think it'd be a fun uh, series and something that would be really interesting to a lot of people. If you've got any, um, uh, like, tips or, like, places you think, yeah, you should go if we get to this goal and we do get to make this series, please do uh, message me on the Patreon or email me at jake at hanrahan.tv or whatever uh places that you know about where you think you know they should probably be covered in a, a series like that do let me know um anyway thanks very much the uh intro music was by an artist called home and the outro as usual was by sam black aka son of old check him out at samblackpf.com. and if there's any beats from like episodes that you think yeah i wish we could hear that on the SoundCloud just hassle him, tell him I said you can hassle him and he might put them up if he wants to, it's up to him obviously, but he might put them up on his SoundCloud. Cheers.